just resorted to being a beggar, and he'd gone into this hamburger joint and uh, hungry as he could be, and he sat there watching people order burgers, and he sat there and watched them eat. And finally, he said to the to the cook, he said, "Say, said if I uh, said if I do a trick for you, do, do you think you would cook me one of those burgers?" And the guy said, "Well, it's according to how good the trick is." And he said, if it's really impressive, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll give you a burger. And so the guy reached in his pocket and he took out a, a mouse and a little miniature piano and set it down there, you know, on the, on the bar. And that little mouse jumped up on the stool and just started playing some ragtime music. And I mean, wow. <laughs> Everybody just looking and just amazing. He said, you got your burger, buddy. So the old boy, Sat there and he ate that burger and oh, it was so good, but he was still hungry. And uh, he said uh, to the cook, psst, psst, "Come here." He said, "You reckon if I'd uh, if I'd do another trick for you that you'd uh, give me another burger?" He said, "I'm still mighty hungry." And the fellow said, "Well, it's going to be really hard to top that." But he said, "If it's good enough, I'll give you another burger." And uh, so the fellow reached in the other pocket and he pulled out this little canary and the little canary just hopped right up on that piano and the little old mouse started playing its music and the little canary just chimed in and just singing along, just, well, I mean singing in, in real English, you know. Uh, uh, and the guy said, wow. He said, I don't believe this. He said, man, what are you doing begging for food. Don't you realize that you could make millions of dollars with this? And the guy said, oh, no, no, I couldn't do that. He said, why not? What do you mean you couldn't do that? He said, no, I, he said, I couldn't do that. It's not real. He said, what do you mean it's not real? He said, the mouse is a ventriloquist. And so, <laughs> you see, some people just don't get it. It just doesn't. Some of you didn't get it either. You're dumb as a... Well, I shouldn't say that. Take that back. Lord, I'm sorry. They're not dumb. <laughs> but a lot of folks just, you know, don't... They just don't get it. I, and you, people don't know. Always know what's real and what's not. I noticed on the news this last week, and I think just about everybody in Houston... Uh, and I really, it's not funny when somebody breaks into your house and steals all your stuff, but this woman had a three-story closet. I mean, they showed this on TV now. I've never seen a closet like this. It was three stories, 3,000 square feet. All of these designer purses and watches and shoes and just every woman's dream, all of this stuff. And... Uh, so whoever the thief was broke in there and stole something like a million dollars worth of all of these designer stuff. <laughs> Last week, the thief packaged up a bunch of this stuff and sent it to one of the news people here in town to prove, he said, it's all fake. <laughs> None of it's real. Oh, you know, the worst part about that probably for the woman is not losing the goods, but everybody finding out it's all fake. <laughs> all those designer purses. I wonder how many women carrying around these uh, these designer purses and they think they're real and 
and they're not. But that, that's another story. I'll let you worry about that. Turn to James chapter 1. and I'll get there in a minute. You know, counterfeiting is, uh, is big business today, seriously. Uh, anything that has any value, somebody's going to going to counterfeit it. I, I'm laughing because uh, they even counterfeit jerseys of the Astros, and uh, <laughs> I don't I don't know how that ever be of value. But but <laughs> I'm sorry, Brother Ron. I couldn't I couldn't help it. I, but if it's worth anything, or maybe even if it's not, somebody's going to counterfeit it if they can make a buck. Now, the sad thing about all of that, and I know we're being lighthearted, and we're going to get serious. The sad thing about it is, you know, a lot of people lose their life savings all because of some scam, something they thought was real, and it turned out to be a counterfeit. And there goes the kids' college education, and there goes their retirement plan, and everything else out out the window, but and that's bad, but what I'm going to be talking about today is a lot worse than that. What I'm talking about today doesn't have anything to do with your wealth. It doesn't have anything to do with your health. It has something to do with your relationship with God and your eternal destiny. And it doesn't get any more important than that. And I want you to notice what James says here in chapter 1. I'm going to read two verses. Verse 26, If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridles not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and keep himself unspotted from the world. Back many years ago, before uh, Crystal's dad became a, a preacher, he was uh, he was a music director, uh, and I can remember him just as a young man over at uh, Austin Avenue Baptist Church. And uh, I, boy, I, I just never heard a voice quite like Rick's. It was absolutely amazing. But I was there preaching a, a revival meeting. This has probably been 35 years ago. And uh, he had the congregation to sing a little song. That was way back when, uh, let's see, how, how does it go? Uh, uh, going, to teach the, going to teach the world to sing. Something about Coca-Cola being the real thing. Well, Rick took that and he made a song about Jesus. Did, did you ever hear that song, Crystal? Yeah, uh, he's the real thing. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about this morning, the real thing, whether it's real, whether it's true or not. Now, I don't care whether you drank Coke or not, but, but I am very much concerned about whether or not you have the real thing when it comes to being a Christian. If you've been here the last two months, you understand very well why... I'm preaching this message this morning because a lot of people have lived for a number of years thinking they had the real thing when they didn't. You know, we live in a day where reality TV has become all of the rage and the, the popularity of, 
of such programs is amazing. I mean, you know, it's not just Duck Dynasty. There's the Ice Road Truckers, and it's not just the Ice Road Truckers. It's life below zero, and it's Alaska, the last frontier. And now they got a bunch of people that live out on a frozen lake, and and that's the reality show. And it just goes on and on and on. Now, you know... As popular as that is, there's a lot of people that despise falsehood. You know, it's one thing whenever it's not make-believe, you know, whenever you're being fair and you're being honest about it. But there is something absolutely repulsive to people when it comes to hypocrisy concerning religion. And that's why people throw that word hypocrite around so much. I'm not going to church anymore. There's just too many hypocrites in the church. But we need to understand that religion, true religion, deals with the most profound issues of life. And, and, uh, and just mere sincerity is not going to be good enough. Just saying, well, I'm really sincere in what I believe, that's not going to get you into heaven. And just following tradition, you know, well, Grandpa was a Baptist, and so, you know, that's that's why I'm a Christian. Well, that's not good enough. Uh, the unsaved world, people that know nothing about Christ, despise professing Christians when they don't live up to what they know is the standard of Christianity. There was a singing group, Millie Vanilli. Now, I never listened to them on purpose in my life. I promise you. I, I just read the story. <laughs> they, they were real popular and had a song that says something about, hey girl, say it ain't, say it's true or something like that. And they won this award. And, uh, man, I mean, the whole world is applauding them. They won this award. Come to find out, they lip-synced the whole thing. It wasn't even true. And they took their award away from them. Well, you know, I, I don't, that doesn't bother me. But the sad fact is a lot of folks are actually living a lie. A lot of folks have bought into this, this worldly, thought of religion that if I that we all worship the same God and it doesn't make any difference what we call him and as long as we're sincere that's going to be good enough to get us to heaven. But it's not. Now I want you to notice, because you'll hear me speak about religion a lot of times in a very negative way. But religion is one of those words that can be used in a good sense or a bad sense. And I want you to notice here, this word religion is used in a positive sense here. And, and it simply means the outward display of our service to God. And he's speaking about pure religion as opposed to, you know, the religion of the world and so on and so forth. The religion that is not pure, not real, not, not true. And so true religion is all about God, not us. In other words, it has to do with our lifestyle, the manner in which we live, and it's to be a lifestyle of love and faith and obedience to God. Now listen, 
James is not writing this just to fill up space in the Bible. He's writing this because the Spirit of God is directing him to do so, and the Spirit of God does this. Why? Because people need it. Back then, just as today, there are those that have that have bought into the philosophy of the world that just any old religion is good enough. And so he gives three marks, three characteristics of real, true religion. In other words, these would be evidences of somebody that has really, truly been born again. And I want you to notice as he begins here in verse 26... The first thing he does is to speak about personal maturity. He says, if any man among you seem to be religious, boy, there's a lot of that going on, right? They seem to be religious, but now notice, and he bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart. This man's religion is vain. That word vain means worthless or dead. Totally worthless. Now I want you to notice that James is using the tongue as an example, and you look at this and you think to yourself, this really seems strange, but there is a reason for it. Now he could have mentioned a number of different things, but he mentions the tongue because he tells us in chapter number 3 and verse number 2, that if a person is able to bridle their tongue, if they can control their tongue, then they're able to, they're able to maintain control over their whole body. And the point is, it's an evidence of maturity. And notice that word perfect, because it doesn't speak about somebody that is sinless. That's not the idea at all. But he says, if he bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, his religion is in vain. And in chapter 3, where he talks about the perfect man being able to bridle his tongue, it means somebody that is complete or somebody that is mature. Now, here's the point. In real religion, there's going to be some evidence of spiritual maturity. Now, please, please listen and understand what I'm saying. The minute that you get saved, you receive a new nature, but you do not automatically become spiritually mature. I mean, whether you're 8 or 80, if you're 80 years old and you got saved yesterday, you're just a babe in Christ. If you're 8 years old and you got saved yesterday, you're just a babe in Christ. You haven't began the spiritual maturing process yet. And by the way... You don't need to apologize for being a spiritually immature Christian if you've only recently been saved. But you need to understand there's really something wrong when you don't make any progress in maturity. That's what happened to the church at Corinth. And the Apostle Paul, as he's writing to them and he's talking to them about the problems in the church, there are all there's envy and strife and divisions in the church. And, and, and Paul just hit the nail on the head when he said, Well, I couldn't speak unto you as though you were mature, spiritual people, but I had to treat you like little babies, spiritual babies. In fact, he called them babes in Christ. They were in Christ, they were saved, but they had never matured. 
And, and there's a lot of folks today that is in that same boat. And while that's cause for concern, it also ought to make us to pause and to stop and to ask ourselves why. I said here a while back, you know, if a person is spiritually dead, and we all are by nature, until you're saved, you're spiritually dead, and no amount no amount of Bible teaching is going to help you, change you, or save you, or anything else until you trust Christ as your Savior. It'd be like going out of the cemetery and digging up a body and trying to feed that corpse. It just wouldn't do any good whatsoever. Because, they, they look, they, they don't need a meal, they need life. And that's the way it is with the unsaved person. But after you've been saved, there, there, there ought to be this process to where you begin to grow. My, we would all, I think, if you had a child and they were 10 years old and still in diapers and had, you know, had, wasn't able to walk and wasn't able to talk, I think by now you would have taken that child to the doctor and said, Doc, something's wrong with my, with my baby. He's 10 years old and he's still like a little two-year-old. There, there's something wrong here. And we all realize that. Well, I want you to understand, if you're not growing, after having made a profession of faith, there's something wrong. You ought to be growing spiritually, and that requires a regular diet of food, which is the Word of God. In other words, it takes the fresh air of prayer, the exercise of Christian service, a regular diet of the Word of God. And if you don't do those things, you're not going to grow. But let me tell you, there's something else we need to think about. There is always the possibility that the person is not growing because they've never really been saved. They made a profession of faith. They walked down the aisle and shook the preacher's hand and said a prayer. Why, they even got baptized afterwards and joined the church, but they never were saved. And one of the evidences that you've really been saved is that at some point in time, you start growing spiritually. And so he speaks about personal maturity. But now notice in verse 27, he speaks about practical ministry. He says, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. And notice what he says, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. I'm so glad that he put that first part there, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. I'm glad that statement is there because a lot of people wonder, well, you know, how can you know what's real and what's not? Well, notice what he says here. The real thing will motivate you to what? Visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. You see, God not only works in us, God works through us. God not only works in us to bring us to maturity, but He works through us to involve us in ministry. That, that's the point. Now, we're not saved because of our works. But saving faith does have works. Look in chapter 2. I, most of you know this, but it might be some of you have never read it. Look in verse number 14. What did it profit my brethren? Though a man say he hath faith and have not works. Boy, there's a lot of people in that boat. 
They tell you, oh yeah, I know I'm not living like a Christian, but oh, I've got a lot of faith. Oh, I love the Lord. I'll never forget, you know, I got saved back during a tent revival or a brush arbor meeting, and they've got a big story to go along with it, but 30 years has gone by, and they've never turned to tap for Jesus. Now notice what he says. He says, if he have not works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, and be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding, ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. That takes us right back to what he said about religion being what? Vain, dead, or worthless. And here he says, such faith is dead, being alone. Yea, he says, a man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Somebody takes this, and by the way, do you realize there have been certain preachers, even those that have started a religious denomination, said that shouldn't even be in the Bible? that James was wrong, it shouldn't even be there. And others have said, see, I told you that works does have something to do with our salvation. That if we're going to heaven, we're going to have to work to get there. And what they don't understand is, listen, we, we are saved by grace through faith. We are justified, that is declared innocent of all of our sins. We are justified in the sight of God on the basis of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are justified in the sight of man, not by our faith, but rather by our works. In other words, if you expect your next door neighbor to believe that you're truly a child of God, then there ought to be some works to substantiate the claims that you've made. Is that making sense? Because there's a lot of people talk about, you know, oh, I've been a Christian for 30 years and what have you, and I, I attend church every Sunday and I do this and I do that. But notice he says here that the real thing, real true religion is what? To visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. In other words, that's exactly what Jesus did. If you go back and read in Luke chapter number 4, and if we're going to be like Him, we have to see the need and go to the people and do the job. And multitudes of professing Christians spend all of their life being ministered to without ever ministering to anyone else. Now, this word visit, somebody's thinking, oh boy, I'm going to go on visitation next week. And, you know, it's real easy to start visitation programs. We've started a hundred of them. And boy, you start them, and man, I mean, the first two or three weeks, and Oh, you got a big crowd there, and give it a month or two, and nobody's there. It, it just happens that way. It shouldn't, but it does. This word visit here means go see, inspect. Listen, it's the present tense for habitually going to. In other words, it's not something that we just do occasionally. It's something that we incorporate into our manner of life. It's something that we do. That is, that that for us, Christianity is not just about attending church on Sunday. Christianity has to do with us being involved in a practical ministry where we're reaching out and, and helping those that are in need. 
And it's very important that we understand that because, listen, without us doing that, again, we have no reason to believe that our neighbor is going to be convinced that we're really saved at all. We're not saved by our works, but our faith, saving faith, does have works with it. In other words, it motivates us to work. He goes on and he says, you believe there's one God. He said, you do well. The devil believes also and he trembles. So, you know, just having all this information tucked up there in the final cabinet of your mind, that's, that's not good enough. There has to be a faith that, that not only is trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, but a faith that motivates and moves us to obey the commandments of Christ. Now, look at verse 27 again, because here's the third thing that he mentions. There's personal maturity, practical ministry, and now he speaks about pure morals. Verse 27. And, boy, a lot of people, you know, probably wish that he would have just left this part off, but he didn't. And... Not just to get out and to visit the fatherless and the widows, but and to keep himself unspotted from the world. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, flip over one page to chapter 4 and verse number 4, and, and this will help you to see the picture. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not, that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. In other words, if our morals are not pure, if we love the world more than we love God, then, then he's telling us that we have a serious problem. Do, do you realize that over and over again in Paul's writings, he made this statement, basically the same thing with a few different words, but it always started this way. He said, be not deceived. Be not deceived. You see, there are so many people that are deceived, and they think they've got the real thing when they don't. And he said, be not deceived. And he gives a long list of people of, of certain sins and and he says, be not deceived, none of these shall inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, well, somebody's here now thinking, well, I guess old so-and-so's not saved because I remember one time he did this or he did that. He must not be saved. No, that's not what he's talking about. Well, you say that's exactly what it says, that if you're a drunkard, you're not going to be a part of the kingdom of God. Doesn't it say that, preacher? Yeah, it says that. You see, you can be saved and commit absolutely any sin. You shouldn't, but you could. By the way, if you think you can't, you're headed for trouble. But I'll tell you what, you won't continue to live habitually under the power of that sin. That's the difference. Turn to First John chapter number 3, and I'm telling you what, these verses ought to scare some people to death because it just, I mean, it just describes a lot of folks to a T, and they go on talking about their relationship with God. And I want you to listen to what John says, First John chapter number 3, verse 8. 
Well, verse 7 says, Little children, let no man deceive you. And that's what we're talking about, right? He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he that is the Lord, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that is, he was revealed and made known, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. Now listen carefully. In this, what I've just read, in this, the children of God are manifest, they're made known, they're revealed, and the children of the devil, whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, and neither he that loveth not his Brother, I'm telling you, that is as blunt as it can be, and it's as serious as it can be. Well, preacher, I don't understand. You're saying that if I'm saved, I can't commit sin. Did you pay attention? That's all in the present habitual tense. It's not speaking about what you do occasionally when you act out of character because of some impulse and you're stressed out. It's not talking about that. It's talking about what you do habitually. And the person that lives in habitual disobedience to God has every reason to believe that they've never been born again. And... uh, Many years ago, a woman, in fact, there were a couple of them from some church of Christ in our area that was back in Missouri, knocked on the door, invited me to church. I said, I wouldn't be interested. I happened to pastor the Baptist church right down here. And they said, well, it's a shame you Baptists don't think, uh, you Baptists don't think baptism's important. And I said, wait a minute, I don't know who you've been talking to, but I think baptism's very important. And they said, oh, well, you know what I mean. Uh, you, you think, uh, you know, you, you think if a person's really a Christian that, you know, that uh, uh, they can be really Christian and don't have to be baptized. Now, I don't believe that at all. I believe if you're really a Christian, you can be baptized. You do? You, that, you believe? I said, yeah, sure. If you're really a Christian in the truest sense, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, absolutely you will. Because that's your first act of obedience after you've been born again. But being baptized isn't the thing that saves you. That's not the thing that gets you in heaven. That is an evidence that you've been saved. Do you understand that it's on the basis of that testimony that churches accept those professing believers into the fellowship of the church? We don't accept everybody into the church. Somebody says, oh, i become a Christian. I want to join the church. Well, that's well and good, but are you willing to follow the Lord in baptism? You say, oh, no, I would never do that. Well, you can't be a member of the Lord's church without doing that. That's your first step of obedience unto the Lord after you've been saved. It's not the cause of your salvation, but it is the evidence of the fact that you have received Christ as your Savior. Look, folks, I'm not trying to win you over to my way of thinking. I don't want you to believe anything just because I say it's so. 
I want you to be able today to leave here with absolute assurance in your heart and a sense of satisfaction that comes from knowing that you know the truth about your spiritual condition. And you either have the real thing or you don't. And James is saying pure religion and undefiled, the real thing motivates you to do these things, to live a life of of obedience, to have pure morals, to be involved in ministry, to even personally mature as a as a Christian. So I'm not trying to sit in judgment of you, but I want you to judge yourself because that's what Paul told us to do. He said, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith or not. Wouldn't it be silly to say, examine yourselves if we didn't have some means whereby we could do that? So when the Bible says, examine yourselves, how do we do that? We examine ourselves in the light of God's Word. And I'll tell you, for a lot of folks, if they'd be honest, they'd have to look at their life in the light of God's Word and say, you know, there is no real evidence that I've ever actually trusted Christ as my Savior. It's all a counterfeit. None of it's real. Boy, if you find yourself on the horns of that dilemma this morning, I beg you, whatever you do, don't don't just close up your Bible and walk out of this building and go your way without getting that settled in your heart. You don't have to live like that. I'm telling you, you can know beyond all doubting that when you die, you'll go to heaven. You can know beyond all doubting that your sins have been forgiven, that God is your Father, Christ is your Savior, heaven is your home. You can know that by putting your trust in the, in the Word of God. Is it real or is it a counterfeit? I hope you can say this morning, preacher, there's no doubt about it. It's real. It's real. I hope so. Let's stand together. Those awaiting baptism, if you would, go ahead and meet Brother Kenneth right over there and make your way to the dressing room. Father, this morning I pray that as we lift our voice in song and extend this invitation, that each and every one might examine their hearts in the light of Your Word. God, help us to be honest. We can't do this without You. We would just go right on deceiving ourselves and trying to fool others. We'd go right on pretending and eventually end up like those that, that bragged about their good works only to hear Christ say, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. God, may there be none here today numbered along with those folks. May each and every one come to a saving knowledge of Christ and serve Him faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we lift our voice in song, if God's speaking to your heart, would you come?